Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 20. Before we do, uh, we've already been talking about the fact that there are some warnings in this book. Uh, There's the peril of drifting. There's the warning about the peril of doubting. Uh, There's the peril of dull hearing. And we're currently in, in the peril of departing from their faith in Christ's finished work. The writer is telling them they need to go on and mature in their Christian lives. Now we did spend, did not spend much time on verses 9 through 12. So I want to begin by going back to those verses briefly and uh, look at some blessed truths from these verses before we finish this tra- chapter. And I want you to notice, first of all, there's the exhortation made in these verses to, of our walk. The exhortation of our walk. Three particular truths here in uh, these verses 9 through 12. Um, Let me read them. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward your his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Three particular truths here. The first one I want to really, uh, us to really notice is this one. Show the same diligence. Diligence in what? In verses 9 and 10, this writer speaks of better things that accompany salvation. You know, at one time, there were rituals and ceremonies of the Old Testament that took faithfulness. Can you can you understand the faithfulness and the diligence that took needed to be done with those rituals and ceremonies in the Old Testament? I mean, can you imagine getting the animals and uh, killing the animals and and doing all the sacrifices, going through that? That took some faith, uh, faithfulness, and some diligence in order to do that. But they are no longer part of the Christian walk. That took faithfulness. Uh, the faith, excuse me, uh, the faith of the sacrifice uh, already has been made. We don't have to kill uh, lambs on an altar. We don't have to do those things anymore because there has one sacrifice taken place once and for all. That was a sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God, as John said, uh, which taketh away the sin of the world. And that was done once and for all. And so that does not mean that Christians don't do anything. We don't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and say, well, my sins are forgiven, uh, the price has been paid, so I can just sit back and relax now and wait for heaven. 
Uh, there is the fruit of salvation that we spoke about last week, and it referred to is referred to as the work and labor of love, or ministering to the saints. I want you to know the nature of this ministry. Now we don't have specifics here, but the word minister itself is a word that means an attendant to wait on. To serve, to host, uh, to be a friend or a teacher. Uh, This could include helping those who have less in this world's material things. And I should say here that we should not put undue emphasis on the wealth of this world. But living does require a certain amount of money. Right? I asked somebody this morning, do you have a job? She said, yes. I said, that's good. Money's good, right? Right, Katie? I won't mention your name, but... Uh, you know, we're, we're thankful for the jobs that God has given to us, aren't we? Because, you know, we got bills to pay. And so yet we don't want to put an undue emphasis on the wealth of this world, but we do have to live in this world. And so this can be a part of this ministry, but it also... Uh, it doesn't always take form in monetary contributions. I mean, if we help somebody in time of need, it doesn't necessarily we give them money. Uh, we might help them do some things. We might help them uh, uh, get somewhere. Or we might uh, uh, share some food. Or we might give them some clothing. We might uh, use our abilities, our skills, uh, and share that with them in something that they need done in their life. And it should all be done with an attitude of love. Not like, okay, I'll help you again, you know. No, as Christians, we're glad to be of help. It's a ministry. That's the nature of it. Romans chapter 15, verse 25 says, And now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles had been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. Now, it's speaking here of a contribution. Uh, It's talking about some poor. It's talking about some partakers. Uh, It's talking about spiritual things. It's talking about duty. It's talking about ministering in carnal things. Now, that word carnal there isn't something that's necessarily a negative thing. Thing that uh, Paul uses in uh, in Corinthians when he's talking about carnal Christians, but when he's talking about carnal, there he's talking about material things, physical things. And so the nature of this ministry certainly has to do with our giving and giving to meet the needs of others, and it's not always in the way of, of monetary gifts. So that's the nature. Notice the continuance of this ministry. 
And it says here, and do minister in verse 10, the end of verse 10, and do minister. This is not just a one time or even an occasional effort, but Romans 12, 13 says, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. We look over in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. If anybody should be helping other people, it should be Christians helping Christians. Notice thirdly, the motive of this ministry speaks of our gratitude to God. We serve him by serving the saints. It speaks of our devotion to God. We love him. uh, We show love to him by loving the saints. It's our relationship to God. If you are related to God and I'm in a a relationship to God, then we are related to each other. If I'm, did you get that? If I'm related to God, and you're related to God, that makes us related to each other. You say, I'm not a Fleming. No. But I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. So we are children of God. We're brother and sister in Christ. And so we're related. And so our relationship to God should motivate us to help others who are in a relationship to God as well. So that's the first area here, the show show the same diligence that we find in verse 11. Then I want you to notice, secondly, we need to seek the full assurance of hope. The writer exhorts us that they... We're not to waver between Christianity and Judaism, but to be fully persuaded of that which had been promised and given, that which will come in the future. He's encouraging the cultivation of Christian hope. He says he is full of hope with regard to them and desires that they would cherish the hope for themselves. Seek the full assurance of hope. And then... Thirdly, shun slothfulness. Oh, how there's a great need for this in the lives of Christians today. You know, we're so easily prone to profess to be Christians without earnestness. To do our Christian work without energy. There's a very close tie here to that first point of showing diligence. The word slothful means sluggish, lazy. It's the exact same word that's translated dull back in chapter 5 and verse 11. We're not to be sluggish or lazy in our Christian walk, but rather followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now that brings us to verse 13. And I want you to notice there the example of Abraham's endurance. Endurance. The key word here is the word promise. Abraham acted upon God's promise, and you know what? We're to do the same thing as well. We're to act upon the promises of God. Now notice, first of all, the promise given. Verse 13, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he would swear by no greater, he swear by himself. God made a promise. The story of that promise still one that's probably the most highly cherished, even among Orthodox Jews, is recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me just remind you of it. 
It says in Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord hath said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and to a land I will show thee, and I will make thee of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. His promise was not fulfilled immediately. Abram, as he was known then, was in Ur of Chaldees when God made the problem. And from Ur, he went to Haran and remained until his father Terah died. And he left Haran and went to Ur when he was 75 years old. Think about getting that promise and then waiting till you're 75 years old before you're even uh, going and doing what uh, God told you to do. And at that age, he still had no seed. He had no children, no son. There was an absolute no sign on the immediate horizon that the promise would ever be fulfilled. At age 75, you start well, think, well, this is never going to happen. So Abram did what a lot of us would do today. He attempted to help God out. He was going to help God out of a jam. And that blunder resulted in the birth of Ishmael to Sarah's Egyptian handmaid, Hagar. And when the patriarch was 86 years of age, that's when that boy was born. And there have been major problems between Ishmael, Ishmael's seed and Isaac's seed ever since. Now the miraculous birth of Isaac, the seed who fulfilled the promise, did not occur until Abraham was 99 years old or maybe 100. But the promise was given. Who gave the promise? God We might think, oh, he's never going to fulfill that promise. But notice, as the writer here goes on and says the promise confirmed. says, because he swore by no greater, he swore by himself. When God made the promise to Abraham, he could swear by no greater than he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. This confirmation took place when Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah was a direct response to his manifestation of faith. Later in Hebrews, the writer will describe it in chapter 11. We'll find that in the the hall of faith there. But the actual account, the original account, is found in Genesis 22.15. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, in that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will not multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Notice, he says, by myself I have sworn. Or even as our text says, he swear by himself. What our Lord said about the vows 
in the Sermon of the Mount indicates that people in the Bible times considered the swearing by heaven or the by earth an extremely abiding, uh, binding uh, uh, thing. Uh, yet God did not swear by heaven or earth. What's the Bible say about heaven and earth? Heaven and earth shall pass away. Right? So if they're going to pass away, he took the oath upon himself. His own eternal character and his own being the highest and the greatest confirmation possible. So the promise is given. The promise confirmed. Thirdly, the promise obtained. Verse 15. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. That word obtained means to light or to hit upon a person or thing to attain or to obtain. The thought is that Abraham did not receive the entire fulfillment personally, but only the germ of that realization. He obtained the first fruits, so to speak, meaning that the rest of it is still coming. Remember, the promise was that Abraham would become a great nation and all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Isaac was a partial realization of that pledge, but only Christ, of course, is the actual completion. Abraham, while waiting to obtain it, patiently endured. Now, it's not easy. As all of us know, we don't, or we're not very patient many times. It's hard to wait on God's timing, isn't it? Yes, waiting on God who operates according to his own time schedule is often difficult. As for Abraham, some may wonder how patiently he endured when he tried to help God out by taking Hagar and having his son Ishmael. And I may be wrong here, but it seems to me that the impatience might have been on the part of Sarah. And you say, well, there you go, blaming the woman. Yes, but we're looking here at what God's word says It does say Abraham patiently endured. We get the impression that maybe she called the shots here. Remember, Sarah was a beautiful woman. She turned the head of every man who ever crossed her path. And one of the problems is that because uh, she got what she wanted. I mean, how many men have done what a beautiful woman wants in order to gain her favor? It's been a problem down through the ages. You'll recall it was her idea for Abraham to go in unto Hagar. You find that in Genesis 16. It was her idea. And then after Isaac was born and weaned, it was Sarah who insisted that Abraham cast out the bondwoman and her son. So it could not be, he could not be the heir with her son, Isaac. Well, what did Abraham do? He went along with it. He gave Ishmael an inheritance of a bottle of water and a loaf of bread. And I think Abraham was certainly patient, waiting all that time for the promised seed, but too easily influenced by his beautiful wife. So Abraham sojourned for nearly a hundred years, dwelling in tents, building altars, digging wells, fighting and waiting and waiting. It was a picture, as Hebrews 11 explains, of complete trust. He walked by faith and the faith was eventually rewarded. So we've looked at the exhortation of the Christian walk. We've looked at the example of Abraham's endurance. Thirdly, the immutability of God's counsel. What is immutability? Something that's immutable cannot be changed or altered in any shape, form, or fashion. I want you to notice God's promise is 
proven, first of all, by two immutable things. Verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. What are the two immutable things in God's promise to Abraham? Number one, his word. That was the form of the promise. The promise was made in Genesis chapter 12. We have already considered that. In the promise, we look at the words. You know, somebody makes a promise, you're going to look at what they say. What do they say? What is being guaranteed? When you buy something that comes with a guarantee or a warranty, you all read those things, don't you? All those terms and conditions. Uh Uh-oh, you don't read them, better watch out. Those are words. We have a lot of those terms and conditions when you do things on the internet, sometimes you say, I agree. It doesn't make any difference if I agree or don't agree. <laughs> sometimes. But it doesn't. You know, if you're really concerned about a guarantee when you buy something, you better look at the words. Secondly, his oath. In an oath, we look at the one who made the promise, who he is, what about his character, and does he have the ability to do what he promises? I've heard, I'm sure we've uh, all known people who tell of, fantastic stories, uh, the most fantastic stories. Nobody around here ever tells fantastic stories, I'm sure. You know, stories about hunting or fishing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But, you know, the problem is nobody believes these fantastic stories. If they would make a promise and confirm it with an oath, well, I remember the story he told about that fish that was this long, you know. And... uh, uh, that's a joke if he makes a, a, a promise, but not so with God. God promises something and he confirms it with an oath. It becomes absolute certainty, a positive guarantee. An oath settles all doubt. It's a confirmation, ending every question, all speculation regarding its fulfillment. And the phrase is literally an oath for confirmation is to them an end of every dispute. And if a human oath settles a question, how much more would the oath of Almighty God who swears by himself? Let's just suppose, are you awake? I mean, I know it's tough this afternoon, but listen. Uh, this is the, we're trying to pick a president, right? Suppose the president of the United States, you know, it's, you can't see his face there. But he gave you his word that he would nominate you for a position on the cabinet. Anybody want to be a cabinet member? Okay. And since we're really imagining, let's say that he called in the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he placed his hand on the Bible, and he took an oath that he would make that nomination. He's going to nominate you. And he, so he, he places his hand on the, on the Bible, he makes an oath, And he says, I'm going to make that nomination. Of course, a transcript is made. You're given a copy in writing, which he signs. He not only made his oath on the Bible, but he signs the the record of it. Wouldn't you, in confidence, think with that kind of confirmation, the nomination was wrapped up, right? You're going to be a member of the cabinet. 
Well, how much more when God promises something and confirms it with an oath? Actually, God makes several types of oaths in the, in the book of, of Hebrews. One, he refers to unbelievers, promising that there is no escape for who those who neglect so great a salvation. That was made in chapter 2 and verse 3. Another relates to believers, as in the case of Abraham here in chapter 6. Another category applies to his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll see in chapter 7. God has made an oath and he's confirmed it. It's going to take place. Now we can make a promise, we can make an oath, and we can go back on our word, but God can't. Notice, secondly, the not only proven by two immutable things, but the purpose of his oath. Verse 17, wherein God willingly more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath. What was the purpose? It was to abundantly prove to the recipients of his promise that his counsel could not be altered or changed in any way. Listen, he meant to settle it, to establish it once and for all. It's unchangeable. He will never, never, ever reverse his position. He's not a politician trying to get elected to some high office and say, well, read my lips. He's not like uh, uh, some uh, uh, foreign dictator who at one time announces that his country is the democracy and then it isn't a democracy. No, this is Almighty God, the all-sufficient one, who will never go back on his word. The word counsel used here is that which refers to the the desire of the triune Godhead for souls to eternal refuge in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The purpose of the oath was to give the heirs of promise a strong consolation. The word consolation here, uh, uh, that in... In verse 18, that in two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. The strong consolation is a means a calling to one side. It is encouragement and a comfort. And the addition of the adjective strong refers to an indwelling strength put forth aggressively. It's like a strong army or a fortress against doubt and discouragement. It's against going back into Judaism, against leaving the new covenant and returning to the old. And then also in verse 18, notice the people to whom the oath is given. It says, we who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Here we have an allusion to the Old Testament cities of refuge under the Old Covenant. God had promised the Israelites through Moses that when a man accidentally killed another, he would have a hiding place, a place of refuge, a place where he would be safe from the uh, retribution of the avenger. Exodus 21 and verse 13, And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place where whither he shall flee. Under the new covenant, it refers to poor sinners who have fled to the high priests for refuge from the curse and penalty of sin. They're the ones in our text that are laying hope upon, or lay hold, laying hold upon the hope. Paul said, 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our God, our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. The great hope brings us to the theme of the message here, and that is souls anchored in heaven. The exhortation of the Christian walk, the example of the Abraham's endurance, the immobility of God's counsel, and fourthly, the entrance of our forerunner. The entrance of our forerunner. Look at verse 19 and 20. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that which within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever under the order of Melchizedek. First of all, he entered as an anchor of the soul. This anchor is both steadfast and sure. You know, some anchors drag, you know, and they kind of, uh, the, the boat will drift a little bit. It doesn't really catch hold of anything, but it just kind of slows it down. Being the aquatic guy that I am, not. I just have read about it. Some anchors drag, and they just kind of hold the boat in a general place and just kind of drifts. But not our anchor. Our anchor is sure. It's stable. It's steadfast. There is no danger of him breaking loose. And so no doubting on the part of those who trust him. Absolutely no need to worry. Am I going to lose my salvation? Am I going to, you know, some people worry about that. I can't help but think of a number of great hymns of the faith that we enjoy singing and take this biblical basis for their theme. Francis Ridley Havergill wrote, They who trust him wholly find him wholly true in that great hymn, Like a River Glorious. Doesn't make any difference how dark the night, how wild the storm, how vicious the human or satanic opposition we are secure in him. Edward Mote gave us the words to the hymn, The Solid Rock. He wrote, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. See, he's gone within the veil. That is, he's in heaven and in the very presence of God the Father, seated in the place of honor and respect at the Father's right hand. Hebrews 9, verse 24, puts it this way. For Christ is not entered into the holy of places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And then there's the souls of those who are trusting Christ have already anchored in heaven. And my, the hymn that I reminded of, the song that I reminded of is, My anchor holds, though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul. I am peaceful, for I know, wildly though the winds may blow, I've an anchor safe and sure that can evermore endure. And it holds my anchor home. 
holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds. My anchor holds. You got that anchor? Is your soul anchored in heaven? Not only has our Savior entered in the Holy of Holies as our anchor, but he's entered as our high priest forever. Verse 20. The Levitical high priest under the Old Covenant did not venture within the veil of the earthly tabernacle as a forerunner. No, he merely entered as a representative. He entered where people are helpless to gain access on their, on their behalf. On the other hand, we will follow Christ within that veil one day. He is our forerunner. Just as John the Baptist's position as a forerunner of Christ meant that Christ was to come after him, so the fact that Christ is a forerunner for the heirs of promise means that we will follow him within the veil. Our eventual entrance into heaven in the very presence of our holy God is just as certain as his. In fact, as certain as if we were already there. Boy, the joy and the blessedness of believing his word. Someone wrote this, And when I am to die, receive me, I'll cry. For Jesus has loved me, I cannot tell why. But this I find, we too are so joined, he'll not be in glory and leave me behind. See, for the present time, he's entered into heaven for us. That is, in our behalf. Doing what? Well, quickly, just look over. Let's look ahead to chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. That means it's eternal. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is there as a high priest doing what is nearest and dearest to his heart, saving sinners and succoring saints. Praise the Lord for that. Now, in closing, let me give you an illustration from history. There's a man being put on trial in Athens on a serious charge shortly after the Battle of Marathon in which the Greeks preserved their liberty from the vicious assault of the mighty Persians. The evidence of his guilt was clear, powerful, and unanswerable. He seemed doomed. And suddenly, a man came from the back and asked to plead on the prisoner's behalf. It was his brother. One who had fought heroically in the war at great personal cost. And when ordered to give evidence... For the defendant, without as much as a word, he lifted up his mutilated arms. Really, they were just stumps. And he was recognized as one of the wounds that helped him to turn the tide in the battle, save their little state. He offered no other plea, no other defense for his brother. That was enough. Charges were dismissed. The prisoner was set free. And someone wrote concerning that historical account, In like manner, the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ are ever before God the Father. 
The nail prints in his hands and feet, the marks of the spear in his side, the thorn marks upon his forehead, the marks of all that he suffered as a lamb slain are in the same sense ever before God the Father in heaven. And while Christ is in heaven, the believer's old sins will never rise in judgment against them. We have an ever-living, ever-interceding priest. Christ is not dead. He's alive. I wonder this afternoon, have you fled for refuge to Christ? Is your soul anchored in heaven? Secure within the veil? If it is not, now's the time to make that matter sure. Otherwise, your future can be betrayed in the lines of one who wrote this. There are wanderers o'er the sea of eternity whose bark drives on and on and anchored ne'er shall be. Romans 10 verse 9 contains the oath of our God who swears by himself because he can swear by none greater. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One of the richest men in America was J. Paul Getty. He was addressing some of his financial peers in London's Dorchester Hotel when he revealed what he called a lifelong conviction. He said, if you can trust a man, a contract is a waste of paper. Well, God did more than than that. He swore by himself, confirming it with an oath, and then he put it in writing on paper called the Holy Bible. We have it right here. This is his salvation guarantee. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called? If not, why not? Do so right now by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you again.